This week on the podcast, we pick up our consideration of the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome, soul care in the ancient world, roughly 400 BC to AD 300. In our last episode, we took the entire time to discuss soul care from the perspective of Socrates. Next, Plato. Plato was born in the year 427 BC. He died in 347 BC. Plato studied with Socrates for eight years, and after his mentor's execution, Plato was nearly undone as he abandoned Athens for as long as 12 years before returning eventually. In 387 BC, he founded his own academy, and that school stood for nearly a millennia. Talk about an institution with some staying power. Plato's Academy was the center of learning in the Mediterranean for almost a thousand years. It was eventually shut down by the Roman Emperor Justinian, who saw Plato's psychology on a crash course with the historic Christian faith. Well, what did this man believe that was so powerful and enduring on the one hand, and yet so threatening to the Christian faith on the other? Well, in a nutshell, Plato taught a theory of anthropology known as dualism. Dualism understood that human beings are dichotomous creatures. That is, that we have a material part to us and we have an immaterial part. Well, so far, so good. And though he wouldn't care, uh, Plato is perfectly biblical on this point. And though scripture teaches a dichotomous man, it does not go so far as to teach dualism. So what is dualism? Well, dualism is the blatant affirmation of the superiority of the immaterial part to the material part. This theory goes by the name of Platonic dualism after its founder. Uh, psychological scholar uh, Morton Hunt summarizes it this way, quote, this is the heart of Plato's theory. Reality consists of ideas that exist eternally in the soul pervading the universe, while material objects are transient and illusory, end quote. So if we cast it in the language of Genesis 2-7, uh, the dust isn't nearly as important as the breath. In fact, the dust isn't even real in the final analysis. Now, if taken seriously, uh, Platonic dualism is frankly heretical. There's no other word for it. And I, I'm not wild about tossing the H word around. It, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf after a while. But we use this word too many times and people stop listening to you. I like to save the word heresy for situations that call for it by necessity. And dualism, Platonic dualism, is such a situation. Dichotomy, dust and breath, uh, material and immaterial. That's taught in scripture. That's orthodoxy. Dualism, we've got breath for sure, but the dust, well, the dust is illusory. Dualism rips the heart right out of the Christian gospel. Think about it. John chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 1 verse 14 both affirm that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. If Platonic dualism is true, then Christianity is false. One of the issues on the table for the apostle in the first century Colossian church 
was this very matter. <laughs> that matter didn't matter. <laughs> but of course, it, it does matter. Uh, the master himself, God's son, took on matter. Later on, uh, the Apostle John, not unlike the Apostle Paul in Colossae, John battles this heresy as well in his epistles. In 1 John 4, 1-3, we read, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Eventually, Platonic dualism will make serious inroads into the Christian church in the first few centuries in the form of the Christological heresies known as Apollinarianism and Docetism. These folks believed in Christ's divinity but they denied his humanity. And in so doing, they denied the gospel itself. That's well, pretty heavy duty, isn't it? The implications are, are vast. Uh, Platonic dualism has, has never really left the church. This heresy is alive and well today. It was, it was re-energized in the second millennia AD with the teachings of Thomas Aquinas, who we'll talk about in several weeks' time. And uh, the effects of Platonic dualism linger really to this day. Uh, we participate in this error every time we can't imagine that Jesus belched, for example. We, we feed on this mistake every time we minimize a healthy biblical concern for the proper treatment of our bodies or for this planet, for instance. We blunder into this thinking when we can't imagine that our God has an opinion about our sex lives. Plato is hugely impactful. It was Alfred North Whitehead, the, the liberal uh, thinker, who once said that, quote, the European philosophical tradition consists of a series of footnotes to Plato, end quote. <laughs> That's an amazing statement. He, he's probably right, uh, though, of course, overstated. Now, one of those footnotes, I say, quote unquote, footnotes, is, is the next titan on the list, Aristotle, who, who really is, is no one's footnote. He is a uh, a massive man on his own, in his own right. Uh, Aristotle is the disciple of Socrates. So in other words, Aristotle was, excuse me, Aristotle was the disciple of the disciple of Socrates. In other words, Aristotle was Plato's student. And he wasn't just any student in Plato's academy. He was Plato's prize student. And it was, it was a love-hate relationship for Plato loved him, but Aristotle utterly rejected his teacher's dualism. And the divide became so hostile that when Plato was dying in four, uh, 347 BC, by the way, his dates are 384 to 322 BC. So when, when uh, Plato was dying in 347 BC, about halfway through Aristotle's life, he refused to hand the lectureship of the academy over to Aristotle. Plato tapped his own son for that role instead. So what do you do when your mentor snubs you, even though you know you deserve the promotion? Well, you, you leave the academy and you start your own. That's exactly what Aristotle did. Uh, Aristotle uh, had to have been hot. I mean, he spent ages 17 to 37 underneath the care and tutelage of Plato, and then he was passed over for the post. He gives birth to an enemy school known as the Lyceum. 
I picture the rift between Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum as something on the order of the Green Bay Packer-Minnesota Viking rivalry. No love lost here. The Lyceum was uh, was an interesting place, to say the least. He, he plants this school outside of Athens and was able to draw a faculty. A student body is attracted, and in time, a, a sizable library, and so on. And he's off and running. And though it would be uh, more fitting to say he actually was often walking, <laughs> uh, he conducted class outdoors all the time. He walked the grounds and traversed the Lyceum property. The Greek word peripateo, which basically means walking around, is, is precisely what Aristotle became known for. Uh, peripatetic, uh, pedestrian, walking around. The Aristotelian psychology and soul care. Now, his organizing thought revolved around the use of logic and the exercise of reason. Perhaps you've heard of Aristotelian logic the law of non-contradiction. So on one level, he's, he's terribly successful. His thought, his counsel was adopted quite broadly. Well, what about his life? What about God, for example? Well, the eminently quotable Dr. David Larson, who just recently went to be with our Lord, writes this, quote, God was, for Aristotle, impersonal, neither caring nor loving the world and its creatures. This did not ultimately lead him to peace. In a short time, Alexander, his hero, died of debauchery. Demosthenes, the great orator, drank poison. And Aristotle, depressed and disappointed, Diogenes Laertes tells us, also drank the hemlock. End quote. Aristotle killed himself. He died as tragically as Socrates, only more so for no one force-fed Aristotle his poison. So much for the glory that was Greece, right? What about the grandeur that was Rome? Well, two men of note stand out, Seneca and Epictetus. Let's start with Seneca. Seneca was born in 3 BC and died in AD 65. So that makes Seneca almost an exact contemporary of Christ and the apostles. But you could never be guilty of confusing him for Christ or for one of the apostles. Uh, Seneca was no saint. Seneca was a Stoic. Now, before that word became a noun that meant fatalist or unfeeling or an adjective uh, meaning resigned or indifferent, Stoicism was a school of philosophy in ancient Rome. Prior to Seneca, there were other Stoics. Among them was uh, Cleanthes and uh, Chrysippus and Penateus. But Seneca is the first big name in this philosophy. Born in Cordoba, Spain, Seneca was a philosopher and a civic leader and an author. Most importantly for our purposes, though, he was a counselor. He was famous for his writing, particularly for his personal letters in which he sought to do soul care. Now, unlike a number of Stoics, Seneca could be extremely sympathetic and sought to carry out much of his counseling in the form of consolation to those who were grieving a loss of one kind or another. Though a Stoic, uh, his heart, we could say, wasn't particularly Stoic, if you get my meaning. He, he attempted to counsel the suffering and the sick and the dying and the grieving with his own brand of heartfelt Stoicism, you might say. 
He says in one letter to a depressed individual, quote, It will be my glory if I can draw you out of the depths in which you flounder without hope of escape, end quote. In another place, uh, one author writes of Seneca's approach to the cure of souls this way, quote, The shortness of life and the preciousness of every hour are themes of frequent emphasis in Seneca. Life is all too brief for the attainment of virtue. Let us be up and doing. Men forget, and Seneca reminds them, that by nature they die daily and have already partially died, end quote. Now, this was Stoic soul care, which meant it was pantheistic at best in terms of an understanding of God. You will look in vain in Seneca for any hope for, much less interest in, a mediator. And the same is true of our final subject in this particular episode, and that would be Epictetus. Epictetus was born in AD 60 and lived to AD 120, so the latter half of the first century. Epictetus was also a Stoic, and because he was a Stoic, he had very little use for a savior. Stoics were their own saviors. And Epictetus's own story contributes to this. He was the son of a slave woman, born a slave himself. He eventually managed his freedom and became an itinerant teacher and a discipler of students. Soul care was his great interest, and he lured students by the droves. One student in particular, Flavius Arian, took down his lessons and composed uh, four books of Epictetus's written material. While it's true that stoic virtues of self-control, fortitude, and resolution can be key elements in our biblical soul care, it's also true that this can eventually begin to make one's counsel sound like a bit of a one-trick pony. Are you anxious? Strengthen your resolve. Are you suffering? Resign yourself to it. Life is suffering. Are you depressed? Well, this too shall pass. What will be, will be. Take this in stride. <laughs> we can all hear our own failings to care well for other folks in these boilerplate pat answers. Stoics like Epictetus represented this psychology at the height of its popularity. Well, the Stoics were in need of a mediator. And the great irony, of course, is that a number of them during the first century lived as exact contemporaries of the one that the Apostle Paul describes as the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Next week, we'll begin the emphasis on wonderful counselor, soul care through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ distinctives of new covenant, in other words, biblical counseling. Until then, grace and peace.